Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, we'll take a step back and look at the church around the world with special attention to Nigeria. It's one of the countries with the absolute worst record. I tell people it's probably worse than North Korea for Christians. And the bloody holiday season behind us. Right now, the numbers are 140 killed, at least 300 injured. There are still some who are missing. We'll also look at China. The church is still growing in China and really in restricted nations around the world. Plus... The Christian's great hope, the sure return of Christ and how that shaped the early church. They expected the return of Jesus to fuel their faith and their endurance. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm the host of The Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday in Southern California. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at KKLA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter or X at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We're going to begin this week with a look at the church around the world in places where our fellow believers in Christ are paying a heavy price for their faith. Late last year, the State Department issued a list of countries of particular concern. It was notable both for the names that were on there and the names that were not on there. Jeff King is president of International Christian Concern. He joined my colleague Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. Now, how good of a job or how bad of a job is our United States federal government, the bureaucracy? Uh, tell us, uh, give us a report card as we sort of drill down on uh, how honest, how effective, and how accurate are they in the dollars they are receiving as tax dollars to be able to communicate to Americans what's going on with uh, any kind of persecution around the globe? Well, Bill, as you know, that's a loaded question. Um, and it's a, it's a tricky one. You know, there's so many good people in government. There's so many good people in the State, State Department and on the Hill that really care about religious freedom, that care about justice and rights. And at the same time, religious freedom is usually taking a backseat to other concerns. And, you know, the issue du jour for us is, you know, once a year the State Department puts out a list. Uh, and it's a list of basically the countries around the world with the worst records on religious freedom. And unfortunately, this is politicized, it's massaged and managed, and it's subject to political whim and will. And so this year, for instance, you know, Nigeria, it's one of the countries with the absolute worst record. I tell people it's probably worse than North Korea for Christians, uh, if they're familiar at all with that. You know, since the turn of the century, since the millennium, there have been probably about 100,000 Christians killed, murdered by radical Islamists. Uh, another three and a half million Christians have been pushed off their lands. 
And this is so it never stops there. It's year after year, and we can talk about why. But for some reason, they can't find the political will to put Nigeria, and this is the State Department, they can't find the political will to put Nigeria on their list of worst countries. It's been there before, but they failed to put it on, and it's it's pretty aggravating. Now, even the last few days, if you know where to look, folks, you can get reports. And it seems like every three to seven days, I will get a report. And somebody I know, you probably know, Amir Tisfarti. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the leading, not only prophecy experts of a for, of a Messianic Jew, but also really has a pulse on Christian persecution around the globe as well. And I get reports every few days about a village, a group of people. Uh, you talked about it's one thing that you're martyred, but but millions have been driven off their property. But yet, a we don't hear about it, and the State Department isn't even addressing it. Well, what is it? Is there? Is there natural resources that goes into global politics? Is it oil, diamonds, gold, whatever? Why do you think uh, Nigeria keeps uh, finding itself not on the list when it's one of the worst of the worst? Well, Bill, I can see you're a student of geopolitics. I think you nailed it. Look, one of the big reasons is oil. Nigeria has oil. Apart from that, here's the deal. It's like year after year. For the last 20 years, I kind of laid out those stats, what's been happening, right? And if you translate those numbers into U.S. numbers just to show people how egregious this is, that would mean like a half a million Christians in the United States have been murdered, translating into U.S. numbers. 15 million Christian farmers pushed off their land. So that's the scale of it, you know, for our country. And then the the government in Nigeria, year after year, comes to the State Department, and they say, my gosh, we have a very tough problem, but these, these this is a guerrilla war. These are people out in the bush. It's so hard to find. Uh, but maybe if you gave us money for helicopters and for arms, we could do a better job year after year. And so it doesn't wash. And you can see that the fix is in. And here's the deal. It's basically radical Islamists are in control of the army and the police. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, surprise. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. They're in control of all the security apparatus within Nigeria. And so the Nigerian government comes and lies to Washington. And then, unfortunately, the State Department swallows that and regurgitates that. And at the same time, look, the State Department has had Nigeria on the list. So it's a political move to not be on the list. Part of that reason uh, is the lies of the administration in Nigeria. Part of that is oil and some other complexities. This concern about what is happening in Nigeria and the glaring omission of Nigeria from this list coming out of the State Department was particularly concerning given the brutal and bloody holiday season that Christians there just went through. Todd Nettleton of Voice of the Martyrs explains in his conversation with Rick Probst of Faith Talk AM 590 in Atlanta. Over the Christmas holiday, while we were celebrating, Christians in Nigeria had a tough go at it. Let's talk about that and how we can help those folks. Yeah, there were multiple attacks on Christian villages in Plateau State. Plateau State is uh, kind of right in the middle of Nigeria, going north to south. It is on the dividing line between the mostly Muslim north, the mostly Christian and animist south. So it's kind of a fault line where you see a lot of violence. You see a lot of these kind of attacks. 
it is significant that these happened over the Christmas holidays, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, multiple villages, coordinated attacks. This was not just about land rights. You will read that in some of the news coverage. Oh, it it was the cattle herders against the farmers because they're conflicted about how to use the land. No, it happened on Christmas. It was a sign. It was a targeted attack against Christians at a time when they are worshiping the Lord. Right now, the numbers are 140 killed, at least 300 injured. There are still some who are missing because when they attack your home, often you flee into the bush. And some of those people, we don't know if they're still alive. We don't know if they were killed. Um, So this is something that our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are literally recovering from even right now as we have this conversation. Todd, you've been talking about this for years and years, folks, that like the Nigerians, uh, celebrating uh, being Christians, uh, a celebration, Christ's birth, uh, in different occasions uh, d- throughout their lives and throughout the season. I-, I know this doesn't surprise you. Is there anything that's shocking for you? It's like, gosh, I've never seen that before. I wouldn't say shocking, but it is always changing. Uh, and an example of that is is actually in China right now. We we had Bob Fu, the, the president of the China Aid Association, on VOM Radio last month. One of the things he said, he said in 2023, all of the church leaders and Christians that were charged with crimes in China were not charged with illegal religious gatherings, which is a charge we've seen in the past. All of them were charged with financial crimes illegal business practices, fraud, essentially money laundering. Part of that is just the way in China, if if you don't have permission to have a church, uh, obviously you can't go down and, and start a checking account for your church, right? Because you go to the bank and they say, well, okay, we need to see your paperwork. Well, we don't have any paperwork. The government doesn't approve of us. They won't allow us to exist. Okay, so what happens to the money? And I actually had a conversation in Beijing with a pastor about this very topic. And he said in their church, they divide up the church funds among the deacons and they put it in their personal accounts. Well, if you have money in your personal account that doesn't match your income, pretty soon the government comes and says, well, where did that money come from? What's going on here? But the other thing about this, if you or I call the Chinese embassy or our congressman calls the Chinese embassy, they can say, oh, no, 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 no. That had nothing to do with religion. That had nothing to do with Christianity. That was financial crimes. That was fraud. We're cracking down on fraud in China. So they can deny that they're persecuting Christians by making these financial charges instead of religious charges. And apparently it is is something they've seen that it worked because in 2023, all of the Christian leaders were charged with these financial crimes rather than any charge relating to religion or religious activities. Right. When we hear stuff like this uh, in the media, uh, Chinese, uh, U.S., it's kind of a smokescreen, right? So we go, oh, okay, well, that's just terrible. Those guys shouldn't have done that. When the truth is they are surviving the best way they can to continue the church which is still having revival, isn't it? It is. Uh, The church is still growing in China and really in restricted nations around the world. We see that growth of the church in spite of persecution, in spite of trouble, as you mentioned, oftentimes with your own family members. And yet the power of God is moving and the church is still growing. All right, let's talk about India. The national elections are coming up in India, right? And the re-election of Prime Minister Modi uh, could happen. If that happens, is it a good thing 
for Indian Christians or not? Sadly, it's not a good thing. And Prime Minister Modi is now finishing out his second term. This would be an election to his third term. His background is in the Hindu nationalist movement. The The political party is called the RSS, and they believe that every Indian should be a Hindu. And if you're not a Hindu, you should find a different place to live or you should become a Hindu. The, the, those are your two choices. And that has now filtered down from the national government into local villages and local areas where Christians are being arrested for sharing the gospel. Because if you're telling a Hindu not to be a Hindu anymore, they obviously don't want that to happen. And so we have pastors being arrested, pastors being beaten, being put in prison. But this is the national policy. And one of the things we're watching this election is the Indian population going to say, wait a minute, we don't want a government that is so tipping the scales towards Hinduism. We want a government that respects all the different religions. That's what India's constitution promises. But the government of Prime Minister Modi has never lived up to that. That has never been their philosophy. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if India's people say, yeah, that we like that direction. We want to go further that way. Or if they they take a step back from that and say, wait a minute, we want a government that protects all Indians, even if they're not Hindus. Um, persecution has risen dramatically in the 10 years he's been in charge. Five more years means more persecution for our brothers and sisters. Coming up, the Christian's great hope. They expected the return of Jesus to fuel their faith mm. and their endurance and their perseverance. In the next segment of the Christian Outlook, as the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show. How is it that our Christian brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria and China and India can continue to live their lives with joy and confidence and hope? One big reason is the fact that they have, in the title of the book from our next guest, Bright Hope for Tomorrow. The subtitle, How Anticipating Jesus' Return Gives Strength for Today. Chris Davis, the author of that volume, was a recent guest of Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. So something changed for you when you pulled out some of your kids, like, sketch paper. What were you, like, drawing pictures, doodling stuff? Like, what were you, uh, yeah, what was the mental process so. there? No, I, yeah, I was reading the New Testament for, for just preaching. I've been a pastor since 2005. And I was preaching through a number of texts about uh, spiritual growth and how we grow in our faith. And I started seeing these references to the Lord's return all over the place. And I was like, this is too much for me to hold in my head right now. I've got to like get this all down somewhere. So I ran it. I had a home. This is in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and I ran into the house at a home office and I ran over to my kid's easel and pulled out a whole roll of art paper and tore it off 
And my wife was like, what are you doing? And I said, just give me a second. And I started with a pencil in my hand, started writing down every reference to Jesus's return I could find in the specifically in the New Testament letters. What were the apostles writing to the church to say, here's how anticipating Jesus return is supposed to change you now today. Mm. And as I started writing these down, it was overwhelming. And I felt like, you know, that gift where uh, Charlie Day is like, has the cork board and sure, all the, different, of course. The, the yarn. That's what I felt like. I was, I, I ran into the house like a couple of days later after writing all this down by hand. And I said to my wife, it's everywhere and no <laughs> one's talking about it. <laughs> oh, and more so it was like, it's everywhere, and all they're talking about is, ooh, what does this end-time event mean for this prophecy? And what? And I'm like, that's not what the apostles were talking about. They expected the return of Jesus to fuel their faith mm. and their endurance and their perseverance and their holiness, all these things. And, and this is not what people are talking about. So that mm. was eight years ago, and that started my study on this on this topic. Wow. Um, okay, Chris, so, so how does it? I mean, how does it give us strength for today? So one thing it does is it gives us something to hope for that's better than the things that we long for in this age. You know, it's the C.S. Lewis quote about we're like kids making mud pies in slums. Yeah, I mean, that that quote changed my life in high school. I was like, oh, the Christian faith is actually supposed to uh, propel us forward, not just like hold us down in our passions. And so one thing it gives us when, when we feel tempted towards the things of this age the allurements of money, sex, and power, it gives us a broader, a longer vision of what all those things are for. It transforms us through giving us a vision for ministry. One, As a pastor, one of my favorite parts of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians and the Philippians and the Corinthians is how he saw uh, the return of Jesus as something that would give him clarity. And I, I, I say this in the book, mm-hmm. I say, I, I imagine this moment where Paul is standing before Jesus and he's showing him the Thessalonians and he's saying, Jesus, I did what you told me to do. Huh. You wow. know, on the road to Damascus, you told me mm-hmm. to be a witness to your gospel, of your gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to the house of Israel. And I did because he, mm-hmm. te- he says to the Thessalonians, he's been kicked out of Thessalonica. And he says to the Thessalonians, he says, what is my crown of boasting before the Lord at his return? Is it not you? And so he, he imagines this moment where he will boast to Jesus of the faith of those he had invested Mm. in his life and the gospel. Mm. And so it gives so much clarity to the, look, I'm a pastor that ministry can be frustrating. It can be overwhelming. There can be so much that happens that gets us down and, and to have that long view that gives us the ability to have long strides toward that day. So another thing we talk about is afflictions, the afflictions we go through. So there's there are issues of injustice. If you read James chapter 5, he addresses an issue very similar to what we had in the American South in the sharecropper situation following the Civil War, where you had sharecroppers whose wages were being kept by the landowners simply because the landowners had the power to do that. Mm -hmm. James is addressing a very similar situation in the early church. 
and he uses the coming of the Lord as that means by which they can say justice is coming. Mm-hmm. So I develop in the last chapter, I developed this idea of prophetic patience, that this idea that you can be patient because the judge is coming. coming. The judge is standing at the door. And yet that's not just like roll over and play dead, be a doormat, let people take your money and your stuff. James models a prophetic word. He mocks those who are abusing and exploiting the weak and the poor. And he says, actually, your, you know, quote unquote, riches that you're gaining with all this, it's going to turn to dust. It's going to be worthless very, very soon. And so James models for us, here's what it looks like to call out injustice now and speak truth to power now in a way that gives us strength to look towards mm-hmm. the day of the Lord and be patient to know he will make it right. Hmm. So in all these things, it kind of reorders our loves. It does. Knowing Absolutely. what's coming. Yeah. In fact, there's, so in the book, I work through just some introductory, like the, the biblical theology, the whole story of the day of the Lord and the Lord's appearings throughout the Bible. And then in the second part, I walk through these particular images of Jesus as warrior king, bridegroom, judge, and resurrecting one. And the third part, see, there wasn't a third part at first. I just jumped straight to the application about purifying ourselves and doing the master's work and persevering through afflictions. So I started asking this question. So what are some rhythms that can be incorporated into my life to keep me aware that the Lord is coming back? And if you read the New Testament, it turns out that that there's a lot about how gathering, like encourage one another and all the more as you see the day Mm -hmm. drawing near, the way we gather together and take the Lord's Supper, proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Fasting, Jesus said the bridegroom is with them. They shouldn't fast now, but when the bridegroom's taken away, then they will fast. But the third one that I, I develop is that of rest, of taking Sabbath rest. And part of it is disengaging from the news, disengaging from our devices, disengaging from our ruling over the world and, and making something of the world to pause for that one day in seven, like God did on the creation week, to remember God is in control. And when Jesus comes back, Jesus will redeem power that we have messed up and misused. Jesus will redeem delight, again, which we have skewed with our sin and with Satan's temptations. And Jesus will redeem everything, giving us the ability to step back for a day a week and just rest Mm -hmm. and say, Jesus, I'm going to practice. And, And I know we're almost out of time, but let me say this. My dad passed away four years ago, but just about six months before he passed away, he was telling my wife, you know, when I practice Sabbath once a week, it's like practicing for heaven. Coming up, parents and where God has placed them. He first and foremost places children with their mother and father. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Christianoutlook.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. What Christians are experiencing here in the United States may be small relative to what we have just heard a few minutes ago about the price that is being paid in places like Nigeria, China, and India, but we should not diminish what we are looking at, a growing hostility to the Christian worldview and a genuine cost for the faithful outworking of that worldview. In this case, we come once again to California, where AB 1314, if passed, would obligate school districts simply to notify parents when a child is wrestling with his or her gender identity. Jonathan Keller of the California Family Council explains in his conversation with Craig Roberts on KFAX in San Francisco. The politicians of this state have such a blatant disregard for parents. And I understand that a lot of this under the guise of, well, if a parent were to learn that his son or daughter was suddenly publicly identifying as the opposite gender, there could be repercussions, there could be a backlash. And so we're just doing it to protect the kids. Now, I'm not going to say that there aren't instances of that happening, but I don't know about you, but the people in my circle of friends and uh, relations at church and whatnot, 99% of the parents that I know love their kids, would do anything for their kids, would be there for their kids through thick and thin. And I have to wonder if a lot of this debate or failure to want to debate in this case is just a red herring for some other agenda. Well, absolutely, Craig. As you mentioned, they are already starting to make big moves. One of those big moves that you noted is that the Assembly Education Committee led by Assemblymember Al Muratsuchi from Southern California has decided that he will, once again, for the second year in a row, he will refuse to hear AB 1314, which is that parental notification bill from Assemblymember Bill Asaley. And this bill essentially would just say that if a child begins identifying as transgender while at school, they are not hiding it with a school counselor, but they are publicly identifying as transgender. They were wanting to change the sex marker on their birth certificate and their official school records. They're wanting to start dressing with different clothes, be called a different name, use different pronouns. In some cases, they're even wanting now to use the opposite sex restroom. They're wanting to play on the opposite sex from their biological sex sports team. If all of that is happening, all this bill would say is if everybody else at the school, the teacher, the principal, the other kids, down to the janitor, if everyone else at the school knows that a parent's child is transgender, you cannot continue to hide that information from the parents. We're not talking about forced, you know, outing, quote unquote. We're not saying that if there's a, a private conversation that a child has that they're struggling with gender dysphoria, that immediately the, the school psychologist or the school nurse has to run and tell the parents. What we're saying is the parents might not be the first to know. I mean, we, we realize sometimes there's tragic breakdowns of communication between parents and children. They might not be the first to know, but goodness gracious, they can't be the last to know. This sort of bakes into the notion that we don't dare allow parents to know what's going on with their own flesh and blood children because somehow we can't trust them, but we can trust the state. I mean, really? Truly? Uh 
That's absolutely right, Craig. And, and it really gets to the question of who owns children. And as believers in Christ, we know that we see all throughout Scripture that God does not place children in the care of a bureaucratic state. He doesn't place children in the care uh, even, at, although I think it's important, he doesn't even place children primarily in the care of a church community. He first and foremost places children with their mother and father. And it's one reason why God's design for marriage, man and woman, for life, that is the best environment in which to raise children. And certainly we do not think that the states should be deciding for themselves that they know what is the best for every one of these children, that they should be purposely hiding and keeping secrets from children, and essentially setting up a series of surrogate parents, whether it is social workers, whether it is school counselors, uh, whether it is volunteers who are running these after-school clubs and programs, and ultimately, children are the domain of their parents. And God has given those parents the primary duty and responsibility to care for them. Craig, this is one reason, I mean, I'll just be honest with you, my wife and I were homeschooling our six-year-old. Um, I know that homeschooling, I know that private Christian schooling is not an option for every family, but I would just warn everybody who's listening, if your children or if your nephews or nieces, your, your friends, your family, kids in the neighborhood, if they are in public school, you need to urge those parents to be on guard, be on watch, because this is coming. If it's not already at a school near you, I guarantee you it will be there soon. Coming up, teaching biblical clarity on mankind, male and female. Only 52% of the folks who, and these are regular church attenders, uh, told us that they thought the Bible was really clear on transgenderism. When the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. Jonathan Keller, in our last segment, illustrated well the hostility to the adherence to biological truth, something we all agreed on pretty much for all of human history until what feels like yesterday. It really is a sexual revolution. As this revolution continues to unfold, the church has been forced to answer questions that were previously just assumed. We all just knew certain things. Now, Questions surrounding issues of sex and gender and gender identity have become quite prominent. David Clausen partnered with Denny Burke and Colin Smothers on a new resource titled Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage. Clausen was a guest of Georgine Rice on KPDQ in Portland. How do you navigate the hostile culture that we find ourselves in, in which if you hold an opposing point of view, if you hold a biblical view on uh, the subject of gender, sexuality, and marriage, you are deemed hateful, and you can be canceled in some pretty significant ways. How do you hope this book will be used when Christians come together to consider what does the Scripture have to say on these subjects? 
Well, a couple of things, Georgine, and I will say we're at Family Research Council. We're a week or two away from actually releasing a nationwide worldview study that we did with George Barna. Mm-hmm. Uh, we polled thousands of people around, the, specifically in the church. Uh, 72% of the people who took our poll are, are weekly church attenders. And uh, one of the things we were shocked by, and here I'll give you one of the stats, only 52% of the folks who, and these are regular church attenders, not just those who identify as Christian, uh, told us that they thought the Bible was really clear on transgenderism. Um, I think the number was in the high 60s on whether the Bible was actually clear on the moral status of homosexuality. And so to me, so I, I hear the, the question you ask. I, I just want to take it a step further. I do think there's a lot of faithful folks who go to church, but they're actually a little murky on these issues because maybe they haven't been taught from their pastor. Maybe they haven't dug into the scriptures for themselves. And so I, I do think there's a lot of education that needs to take place in the church and in Christian homes, Christian schools. But to the question that you ask about kind of the hostility, it's true. Uh, the issues that we're dealing with right now. So this is back to school season we're, we're about mm-hmm. to enter. Uh, questions that were uh, unchallenged and assumed just a couple of years ago. Think of the question preferred pronouns. Uh, these weren't even on the radar, and now they are, which is why we think parents uh, need to be talking to their kids now about what you're going to do uh, when that teacher asks you to use preferred pronouns or that classmate who was a boy last year wants to identify as a girl this year. Like We need to be having those conversations now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder, too, if there is some confusion within the church. I know there is a stream within the church that embraces all of these things, and it's much more convenient to just accept it and to move on rather than to explore what the Scripture teaches and then to stand on, on the truth of, of those Scriptures. A lot of people just want to opt out. Oh, it's true. No, they do. Because no, no, I think it's inherent with a lot of us. No one likes controversy. The very few people, you know, when there's an argument or there's a contention, want to run into the middle of that. Uh-huh. Um, and, and as Christians, we want to be kind and loving, and we want to be people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And, you know, there's a whole host of issues that I think that good-meaning Christians can agree to disagree on. You know, I'm a Baptist, and I think my Presbyterian friends are mistaken on uh, baptism. But, you know, we're co-laborers. We get along. Um, you know, there's room to disagree on some secondary and tertiary issues. Uh, but there are some issues where there's a clear, thus saith the Lord. Uh, there's a chapter and a verse that we can go to in Holy Scripture. And when it comes to the things like the definition of marriage or whether there's male or female or the moral status of homosexuality. And, and I know anyone, perhaps people listening to this conversation, uh, even just raising the question uh, will sound bigoted and mean-spirited. Uh, but there are some issues the Bible's clear on, and where the Bible's clear, uh, those who follow Jesus ought to be clear. And you know what? Jesus, I'm thinking John 15, 16, some of the last words he shared with his disciples, he said, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So in one sense, we should expect this. Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised. I, I wonder if you would comment on how central this understanding what the Scriptures teach on this subject and the assault on marriage and gender and sexuality, what it says about God himself, and if it undermines his credibility, if we reject what he clearly lays out in in the Bible, is it more serious than just whether or not my neighbor is going to be called a he or a she? The very trustworthiness of God and his word is at stake in this debate. 
we know from Ephesians chapter 5, the marriage relationship is a pattern for the way Christ relates to his church, the the blood-bought, redeemed body of saints that Jesus has bought back. And really the trustworthiness of of God's Word is at stake. We know 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. And if you can go to the Scripture, and, and there's a passage that clearly defines marriage, or clearly defines any of these issues, and then somehow you can say, well, actually it means the exact opposite, well, then all of a sudden that means we can't take God at His Word. And if we can't take God at His Word, then God Himself is not trustworthy. And where does that leave you? Uh, nowhere good. And so I think, yeah, the very character of God and the trustworthiness of His Word is wrapped up in how we understand uh, some of these basic things, such as His creation of us, male and female. Uh, that's what it means uh, to be in God's image. He created this male and female in His image and the relationship of marriage, um, which reflects that unique relationship that Christ has with His redeemed people. Now, the book is designed for group settings like Sunday school classes, small group Bible studies. You have some great chapter outlines. I think for for some who aren't on top of this um, might even be completely unfamiliar, but there are phrases and subjects that will help to better understand where we are as a culture. Can you kind of walk us through some of these um, these chapter titles? Absolutely. So like I said, it's eight weeks and we really try to root people in the Bible because, you know, you know, one thing, Georgine, we're not saying anything new that hasn't been said. What we're really trying to do is just point people to the ancient truths of Scripture uh, that have guided God's people for 2,000 years. Um, so kind of week one is called Creation's Warrant, uh, which is just kind of orienting people to how to read the Bible, to, to read, you know, to have a good hermeneutic, so to speak, mm-hmm. understanding how to read Scripture in its literary, historical, canonical context. And we, we start with Jesus. Uh, which is always a good place to start. Uh, But, you know, when Jesus was asked about marriage uh, in the context of a question about divorce, where did he go? And we show that he went to Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And we're kind of just trying to show how Jesus himself read the Bible. And that goes into chapter 2 called Creation's Order, where we really do do uh, like a a deep dive on what God's Word says in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of male and female in his image, and then the institution of marriage. Uh, so that's, those are kind of the first two chapters introducing people uh, to try to frame our mind to think about these issues the way the Bible thinks about these issues. Coming up. We want to be robust in our understanding of the Scripture and be able to speak truth. But we do it realizing we're speaking to other people who are going through the same trials and temptations that we are. A few more minutes on Male and Female, He Created Them, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. AM Radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM Radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM Radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. If you are a believer today, you are in Christ. And that is your primary identity, the identity that ought to shape every aspect of your self-understanding in front of the God who has made you and has, through the work of His Son, redeemed you. Let's pick up on the conversation of David Clawson with Georgine Rice, talking about male and female, he created them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage. 
In addition to the workbook, I'll call it, male and female, he created them. You also give access to uh, videos that can help your studiers to go deeper. We do, and actually anybody can access those videos for free if you just go to hecreatedthem.org, just kind of all one word, hecreatedthem.org. There's a tab there. Now, the videos are meant to be watched along with the booklet, but anyone can kind of get a taste of the material. We have world-class scholars, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary. We have Christopher Yuan. We have Dr. Heath Lambert, uh, pastor of First Baptist of Dallas. Uh, H.B. Charles, uh, a well-known uh, African-American pastor. We have Rosaria Butterfield, who identified as a lesbian uh, for years, uh, was a professor at Syracuse University, and then had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and uh, now has written books on this issue. And so she she provides one of the videos as well to think about our identity. What does it mean to have our identity first and foremost in Christ? You know, we, we also talk about just real practical issues. What happens when someone ask you to use preferred pronouns, or do you go to the same-sex wedding ceremony? Uh, so it's not just theory, although, mm-hmm. of course, theory is important, uh, but we want to bring the theory out of the ivory tower, so to speak, um, onto the streets. Uh, and and real-life questions that we know believers are facing, and just, again, come alongside Christian parents and pastors and think just a little bit more faithfully about these questions. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that emphasis on practice, because I think for For many of us, gaining understanding is the first part, and it's essential, but how do we navigate through some of the rather treacherous waters that we're going to be called upon to navigate through? We want to extend the love of Jesus out into the culture, and we might assume that doing so, we just simply put blinders on and follow wherever the culture is leading us, but God is calling us to something else, and how we do both things, we stay faithful to the gospel, we extend the love of Christ, and love others well, is a challenge. It is, and I think one of my go-to verses, whether it's this issue, the abortion issue, religious liberty issues, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 15, when he said that we need to speak the truth in love. I think some of us might be better at the truth part, uh, whereas other people might be better, think they're more naturally better at the the love and the kind part. Uh, But Paul says those things, they're really different sides of the same coin. And so we want to be robust in our understanding of the Scripture and be able to speak truth. But we do it realizing we're speaking to other people who are going through the same trials and temptations that we are, that are broken people, that are hurting people. And so I think those things don't have to be in tension with one another. That should really, I think, mark the way all of us as Christians engage these issues. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to mention it to a friend. Find this episode at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're there, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. 